Look nice. at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? <laughs> I mean, you think I'm the girl? keep going. Oh, I, I love just, like, I Ariel. Don't I don't know if I even remember all the Little lyrics, Mermaid but... was my favorite Disney movie. Little it was Mermaid. good. This week on Greatest Stories Never Told, we have the amazing Taryn Southern. Taryn is a content creator. She has 700 million views on her videos. She's the first person in the world to produce an album made with artificial intelligence. She directed a documentary called I Am Human that just premiered at Tribeca Film Festival. And my favorite part about Taryn is she just kicked cancer's ass. She was faced with a cancer that had taken the life of someone in her own family just 15 years ago, and she beat that shit. This interview is gonna blow your mind and it could change your life if you apply what you learn. So stay tuned because Taryn and I are about to go deep. I just have been really wanting to go deep in your Call Me Maybe cover. That's just been something that's on my mind knowing this interview is coming. And just wreaking havoc on your soul, huh? That song. Mm-hmm. What did it mean to you the first time Call you Call Me it? Maybe. <laughs> What an amazing It's track. like, you know. Carly Rae Jepsen. It's like, does she want him to call or not? Or She wants, she wants, that's a great question. Yeah. Does she want him to call or not? Right. Call me maybe. Or does she really want him to call so and she's call playing hard maybe. to get, but she can't say like, don't call me because that looks too hard to I get. I think she wants him to call. I think she wants him to call, but she doesn't want to seem too desperate. So she's right. saying, call me maybe, but really she wants him to, and if he doesn't call her, she'll be upset and passive aggressive. Yeah. And then there is that line in the song where the guy, where she says he takes his time with the call. Oh. You know? Gosh. But it seemed like she kind of liked that. When was this? This is like circa 2014, right? 2015? Around around then, yeah. I think that was a pinnacle point in our society, you know, when everyone was like really just... In our personal development as humans. Yeah, it was like, you know, Tinder was just starting to fire. Yeah. And online dating, I think, went from being a a nerd thing to a mainstream thing. It was something people did in the shadows. Yeah, and then here comes... You didn't talk about it. Yes, and then everyone's doing it, but then here comes this song just talking about good old-fashioned, like, here's my number... Call me. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> not, not for sure, but maybe. Mm-hmm. It was worthy of a cover. It was totally worthy of a cover. Yeah. I don't so, even think I finished the cover. I think I made half of a cover of the. Well, that the was track. what I wanted to really ask you about because it yeah. was like kind of meta. I don't it was like cover was. it maybe. Right. It wasn't the full cover. <laughs> it was half a cover. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Taryn Southern. What an intro. We can we can start there. We can even end there because I'm sure your minds are just racing right now <laughs> with the mind. possibility. Yeah. As I was watching your Bon Jovi video, which we need to talk about, we're going to get to how Taryn went from broadcast journalism to one of the premier Bon Jovi covers of the <laughs> 2010 decade. Really? <laughs> um, but I was watching that and you're just like on stage like rocking it. Yeah. But then I remember a couple of years ago, you were on stage, and you were rocking it, but afterwards you asked, you're like, if anyone has any advice on how to rock the stage even more. And you gave me some great tips. I think it's, yeah, when I'm in new environments, and um, I think I have a tendency to want to not know how to translate performance to different spaces. And when I'm in a new space, and there's a different energy, my empath is like scanning the room, trying to determine where people are at energetically and mm-hmm. then I can't find I can't find myself 
easily slipping into a space where I know how to perform for that crowd. And then that just anxiety, terrible anxiety overtakes me. Oh, interesting. I think though, it's actually, I'm going to guess, worked very positively for you because I also see it as the never stop learning mentality mm. where there you are someone who has a lot of experience that is still open to reaching the next level. Thank you. And I think that's a testament to show how much you've done in your still short life, you know. Thank you. So, but I did find I found cameras coming from a theater background where I legitimately wanted to throw up every time yeah. <laughs> before going on stage and then going into a world of cameras. That was so much easier because I knew I could do it over again. And then by the time I'd get to the third or fourth take, I was comfortable. Got so, it. I think moving into the world of YouTube and moving into the world of creating my own content was actually a way of dealing with my insane anxiety and, and, and being in spaces that I had no control over, like audition rooms. And yeah. once we get into more of that side of the career, there was just, I felt out of control versus putting together my own videos. I'd have my own space. And yeah. yeah. So why the obsession with graduating early? Um, I was obsessed with it. I really was. Well, I, I can tell. Uh, I think in part, when I got down to Miami, it, I had a very tough freshman year. I was really lonely. Um, I didn't have many friends. And I, I think Miami was just, if Kansas is like an apple, <laughs> Miami's not even in the, in the fruit category. Like it's... <laughs> Or if it is, it's it the woman dancing with the fruit on her head right? <laughs> yeah. that's like six feet tall. It was being served something so unrecognizable that I, I, just, I was really out of my comfort zone there. And, um, and so I think on some level, it was a desire to escape that situation and, and get out into, I guess, get out into the real world. And I also felt so ambitious. Like I just wanted to be doing I just wanted to be doing what I loved, and I knew that that was creating, and I knew that that was yeah. That was doing injected. it so it counts for more than credits. Perhaps? More than credits, and more than just. I think a lot of the schoolwork I felt was some of it was really interesting, and I enjoyed, and and other other elements of it felt like just things you have to check off to get to the next level gotcha. of something that was actually interesting or valuable. Yeah. Uh, and so I was. I was really keen on getting done, so that I could okay. get out in the world, and I also felt like. Um, I had this weird thing where I felt like the younger I could start out uh, my career, I'm sorry, the younger I could be in starting out my career, the less pressure I would put on myself, almost like I was granting myself a few bonus years because I knew everyone else was graduating college between Real the ages though. of 22 and 24. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, if I'm 19, 20 and I'm out there, if I fail for two years straight, I'm still entering the same playing field as everyone else at 22. So I have, I'm giving myself two mm. extra years to fail. Ah. And I think that maybe maybe also because I'm a little bit of a, a risk, not a little bit, a lot of a risk mitigator. And that's just how I think all the time. It felt like a, it felt like a really happy place to be in terms of mitigating risk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I've had a lot of the same, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, like faux rationality around my age and mm. you know I have to be the youngest person in the room or when I get to be this age and I'm in this room I have to be at this level of success otherwise I 
but it's, feel weird. That's it's the reality, right? Like we can look at people who are 22, and you could have someone that's 35 accomplish something amazing, but not be recognized for it at the same level that someone at 22 would be like, look so at that true. wonder kid yeah. who just sold their company, or that's so true. They get all these extra bonus points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had this this weird. Thing. I, I went through Tony Robbins, uh -huh. and I discovered that I was chasing significance for a big period of my life. Oh, wow. And on that note, you know, I have some weird things I probably need to go to years of therapy to overcome. But when I turned 40, I had this realization, I'm never going to be on a 40 under 40 list. They've all passed me by. And, wow. and I'd already had passed the 30 under 30, you know? Yes. And it was just like, what does that mean? But it's funny. Because as you mentioned, if someone does something at a certain age, then you get all these lists and you're recognized. Yes. And all That's this, funny that you, you know. say that because I remember turning 30 and having that same, I had this sinking feeling of I just wasn't quite good enough. Yeah, you're not the, you're not the, the whiz the kid anymore. Yeah, and you wanna, yeah. I, I had this attachment <laughs> also because when I was coming up in marketing and learning marketing, I was the kid in the back of the room taking notes. And then once in a while, I'd say something, the guys would be like, oh, that's, that kid's smart. And so I had this image in my head that I was like the smart kid. Uh. And then one day I look in the mirror and I got wrinkles and receding hairline and 4.0 on my license. And it's like, oh, I'm not the kid anymore. <laughs> Am I okay? Like, did I, did I go far enough? And, and what is this new this role? beautiful home. You know? Doing so well, but you're I, still stuck Thank you, you. but you know, still in your own brain, you're still you've had you've had a hard time seeing yourself outside of this lens that you've operated in for 20 years. Yeah, you know what it is. This is funny. See how this interview has now turned to your your. <laughs> you know, let me lay down on this couch right here. Um, I th I think in a lot of ways, I I am just really comfortable. I was really comfortable being the hungry kid. Mm -hmm who is only being judged on how many books I'm reading and the questions I'm asking, how much like curiosity I have, and not on the results that are measurable. Mm. And now that it's measurable, it's like, whoa, people can look and be specific and be like, you did this or this Does or Does it feel uncomfortable not, to evolve you know? into that new space? Or do you like that? It's been, uh, I, well, it's a great question. I think I, I am not as comfortable as I used to be, but I'm getting more comfortable with it. Now that I meet 20-year-old kids who are whiz copywriters and marketers, and they're asking me for advice, and I was like uh, thinking, no, 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 I'm same as you, and I was like, oh, wait a second, no, I'm actually, now I'm closer to the age of 50 than I am to 20. <laughs> it's just a, a, a weird thing. Right. Yeah, Kevin, feel free to edit this out later if my rambling ends up sounding boring. Okay, so... Uh, I love hearing this. All right, uh, I want to talk about Taryn. <laughs> get, get off the, getting off the couch here. So, did you want to graduate to become a broadcast journalist? Then? I think by the time I graduated, I, had, I, I realized that I didn't totally know anymore. Um, I'd had an idea in high school... And then once I'd gone through school, I had also done a, a, um, an internship at the Miami NBC station with the investigative journalism department, which was one of the few investigative journalism departments still around. And I'm still mm. friends with my old boss from that department. And it was a different experience than what I had in my mind. 
And I was really uncertain that I wanted to go into investigative journalism at that point. Um, I also saw that things were changing dramatically because MySpace had just become popular. Digital media was this, this kind of unknown question mark as to how it would impact journalism, but it was, it was, it was there. And um, so I felt, I felt uncertain is the, the short answer. And, um, but I knew that there was a lot of opportunity out there, particularly in Los Angeles. I had sent in a tape to Discovery Channel. They had been looking for a female host with an anthropology background. And because I had graduated with a degree in anthropology, I thought, well, I'll send a tape in. End up being flown to their headquarters and testing for this show. Um, and while I didn't get the final job, um, that experience led me to getting an agent in, in LA. Oh, really? Yeah. To be an on-camera host. To be an on-camera host. Okay. Yes. And when MySpace came around, were you putting things out as far as even like the bulletins on the board and actively posting on social media in those early days? Right when I moved to LA, I started to. Um, and, and it just wasn't like friendly really, content, it wasn't a not thing really... yet for people to post publicly about themselves. It was just, I think there right, was Right, it was still, more commentary, right? Yeah. It, it, and a lot of people, that's why they had, they had these screen names that weren't their real names because you, you wanted to maintain some sense of privacy. It was like, you didn't want to fully put yourself out there because who knows what information people might glean from you. And there was just definitely some caution around it. But I moved to LA. Um, I had this agent who was wonderful, who I'm still close with, um, and started going out on these hosting auditions. And within a couple of months, I was just so fortunate. I booked work and was able to pay you know, all of my bills. I was like the Verizon Vcast girl. I did these shows on the flip phones for Verizon Vcast. Like commercial type stuff or hosting? Hosting, ho oh, yeah. Okay, cool. It would be like a weekly show about video games or in entertainment, pop culture. And then um, I'd say four or five months after moving to LA, two of my friends and I, we sold a show to DirecTV where we traveled the world and met our MySpace friends. That was the concept what? of our show. It was called Project My World. That would be like my dream. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really fun. And so so, so that, was, that was the first like project that I really set up and I learned how to produce and I learned how to pitch ideas and how to build your own, you know, if you can't score the job through an audition, then just go do it yourself. Yeah. And it was, that was such a big learning experience for me in that way. Like, yes, there are these opportunities that I can, I can go after um, through auditioning, but I could also create my own destiny. And that was the beginning of, I think, um, me starting to experiment with what I could make on my own without anyone's approval ah. or writing a check. Okay, gotcha. Hey, I hope you're enjoying these stories as much as I am. I wanna know from you, who should I interview next? Maybe it's your favorite celebrity, your favorite athlete, your favorite author, or just somebody you know who has a story that's never been told before. Comment below, let me know who it is, and then hit that subscribe button so you get notified when I interview the person that you pick. Did you have a secret desire to be a singer as a kid? I always loved it. It never felt like it was on the, even on the table for me. That seemed like, even even acting was sort of in my purview as an as a possible career. Mm -hmm. Like I could be a starving actor. Yeah. But I didn't even have in my head any notion that that pursuing music or pursuing career as an artist was even 
possible. Just seemed even more of a risk than Yeah, I was like, I'll just, I would just be homeless if I did that. Like, well, that's in my mind, yeah. that was all I could see was homelessness. <laughs> so Something Sarah and I talk about is there's so many amazing singers in the world. Like, if Incredible. you go to YouTube and just Google acoustic cover of any song, yeah. you'll find 10 versions that are as good as the original singer or better. Yes. From people you never heard. So many amazing. I mean, there's just so much talent out there, and I felt that. And I, yeah. I also just always thought I wasn't. I and I still to this day I would maintain the position that I'm not good enough. Um, that you either have to be so so good mm -hmm. that you just blow the socks off of everyone, or you have to have be someone that has been just working your tail off in that specific direction for years and years and years and have a very specific vibe and kind of sound and uniqueness that you bring to the table. Like a Carly Rae Jepsen. Sure, yeah, or, yeah. or a hit song, you know, or, yeah. or connections that, right, I did not have growing up in Kansas. So to me, like, that world was always just out of reach. Okay. I pursued music only so much as almost like a someone who runs marathons for the Just extracurricular for the, yeah. challenge of doing it yeah but not with any end goal in mind yeah okay so we're gonna dive back into that but i want to hear on-camera host who discovers youtube yeah that must have been a, uh, a pivotal moment it or, was it was or not I, a first I did it start off as a hobby no, I remember it for was a... the folks at home who are just learning about Taryn for the first time, you were one of the OGs of YouTube. <laughs> you have, you know, over 700 million views. You've got a long history of videos covering a really diverse range. Yeah. And so, many of how which did I've, I've did taken start? down. And um, how many views does Tiggy have on YouTube? <laughs> That's a good question. Oh, Probably you, quite you've a taken few. down videos. I didn't I've think about that. I've taken down over 200. 250 videos. I should make that as a, like, you know, sign off on this podcast. When people come on, they got to share with me the the deleted yes, social media yes. posts. Well, I'm sure that's the thing. Once you, once something's up online, it's never really gone. That's the good point. So yeah. We okay. can talk about that too. But um, I, yeah, I've deleted a lot. Okay. When I first, um, so I was working as a host, starting to dabble in acting on the side because I was making a living and and my agents were like, why not start going out on auditions? So it was kind of this fun new challenge. And I happened to be in one of the supermarkets in LA and on the cover of Wired Magazine was this girl, Jessica Rose. And Jessica Rose had was the star of this YouTube series called Lonely Girl 15. Yes, I met her through you a yes. long time ago when I was a club promoter. Yes. Yeah. So I see this girl on the cover of Wired and at the time, everyone thought that she was a real girl uploading vlogs. And this magazine cover broke the secret that she oh. was actually an actress who had been hired on Craigslist to star in this YouTube series. And it had become hugely popular. It was getting millions of views. Every single day she'd upload a vlog. She was funny. She was clever. And it was all scripted. And it blew people's minds because you felt like you were really in her bedroom interacting with her. And I... I was like, that is brilliant. I've never heard or even, it blew my mind to even think about this new form of entertainment that is quasi real. Yeah. I just didn't even know what to think of it. And it happened, it just so happened that she had the same manager as I did. So I reached out to the manager. I said, I have to meet this girl. And so he put us on a date together. 
and we fell in love. No, we, we became like very close friends and to this day we're very close friends. Um, she moved back to Australia, but she's she was really the pioneer of this whole thing. Ah. And I thought, wow, if if she um, you know, she she wasn't worried about going out for auditions and being seen because she already had an audience of two million plus people tuning in every day to her vlogs. And I found that so freeing and exciting um, that this was sort of created out of nothing. And there was no money to be made on YouTube yet. It was just a platform for That's an audience. Right. But I found that really interesting. And so that same year, maybe a few months after that moment, I made my first YouTube video, which, which was, was a satire of a video that had gone viral um, that year. Obama Girl had become this overnight sensation for her, her song, I Got a Crush on Obama. This is previous to, to Obama running in the primaries. Oh, wow. And so I made a spoof of that for Hillary Clinton. It was a so lesbian this is like love song. 2007. 2007. Okay. Yep. So was, I got a crush on Hillary, hot for Hillary. And that video also went viral. And then, and then what was viral back then? Cause I think it's different now, right? Yeah, it is very Like different. back then, if you got 10,000 views, was that like uh, yeah. pretty I think amazing? the video had like 2 million. Which is like fucking gigantic at that yeah. time, right? Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I it, well, I, remember, I don't even know what was considered big. I don't remember. <laughs> I remember but as I a user back then, yeah. if you saw something with more than a million, you'd be like, I need to watch this because of the social proof. You'd be like, right. All, a million people watch this? Right. I need to see what are they talking about. Yes, yes. So two million. It is, was enough yeah. to get all these political talk shows were calling me. Chris Matthews mm. had me on his show four times to talk about politics. And like, I didn't make this video to become a political correspondent. I made it just to be silly. But... The second, the, the fact that it worked, it completely shifted my, um, my mind. I think it completely shifted my quest around um, what I was doing in LA because I was at that point I was still very much feeling like I was um, playing the game of Hollywood, uh, and they, there was a set. There was a lot of rules <laughs> and okay. a lot of players and a lot of gatekeepers that you had to kind of get through, and it was overwhelming and exhausting and a little bit daunting. And then here was this new playing ground that had no rules and had no gatekeepers and had no one there to tell you no, you and couldn't. That was your first video. Yeah. So you boom home run first at bat. It's sort of. It was. It was both a home run and. At the same time, my agents at the time were terrified because oh, they felt, A, they had no control over it. It, mm -hmm. was, um, it was a little bit of a scandalous video um, in the sense that it was, it was racy, right? I was like yeah. singing about my love for Hillary Clinton. It was meant to be comedy. Gotcha. But in, from, from their point of view, I'm trying to be this sort of serious host. Yes. How does this compete with this image that mm. I'm now making these kind of salacious comedy videos on YouTube. Um, and I think I didn't even know what it was going to do and if it could hurt what I was working on. Um, Have you met Hillary? No. Do we know if she has seen the video? We do know that she's seen the video. Do I don't know what she thinks about it. <laughs> Have, has anyone tried to connect you? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think anyone has ever tried. That, that would be awesome, actually, to sit down with her and say, how did you feel back then? Yeah. Did you feel like I... I took advantage of your of your feminine wiles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bless Fascinating. So that was the first one. So they were were the agents were like 
don't do this without they were talking just, to us next time? Or? They were nervous. Yeah. yeah. They were like, what are people going to think? And, you know, you're hosting the Golden Globes red carpet for NBC, but you've also got this, like, lesbian love song thing going on on YouTube. And, and I tried to tell them, like, well, it's just like an SNL sketch. Just think of it like Lonely Island. Mm -hmm. and they were like, yeah, but it's not SNL. It's YouTube. Mm. So I really started learning that there was a... People hadn't yet formed an idea in their head of what YouTube was. It was not... It was not cool yet. To Were be on the YouTube. the was the noise around your piece big enough that the YouTube folks themselves were reaching out to you and being like, "Hey, thanks," or "Let's talk," and uh, all that? Like the, or were they like embracing the other YouTube uh, content creators? No, like the executives at YouTube or whoever, oh. or did they even have people um, there that well, worked what's with ironic, content creators? Ironically, the the guy who produced the Obama Girl video, I had reached out to him. Okay, we had become friends. Um, and he'd sort of helped talk me through what of what he knew of the YouTube world. He ended up becoming the president of YouTube, uh, YouTube space, YouTube content, like creator division, and, mm -hmm. and then later president of the originals. Um, so it was funny, like his career, he started out actually just making these videos and oh, then wow. later later became like the guy at YouTube. Um, so I... I I had some communication with, with people at YouTube, but very minimally, yeah. But that was a sign for you that you felt that you could put things out there, though there wasn't money attached to it. There was no money, but there was this notion that I could, I could put something out and be seen for it. And get an audience. And that I could invent myself in that way. Like mm. I could reinvent myself if I, wanted to do, if I wanted to do XYZ, but I wasn't getting hired to do that thing in LA, in the traditional Hollywood industry, why not make it myself and put it out online? So that and was so kind of the start of your like comedy, comedy. That's right. career yeah. phase. Yeah. So awesome. I started acting. I started booking some guest starring roles in tel on television. My first one was Rules of Engagement, which was David Spade's show on CBS. I had a reoccurring role in that series. And it had taken me several years to get to the point where I could book from auditions. And um, it was hard. It was just really, really hard to book roles. I also think I probably wasn't great at auditioning. Um, due to my anxiety and my nerves. And mm. So I was always working against that. And so whenever I could in my spare time, I would make these comedy videos. And because the Hot for Hillary video had done well and it was a, it was a song, I started, I, I thought, well, I'll just do more musical comedy. I know, I know how to do that. So I kept making musical comedy videos. And, and uh, I made a series called Private High Musical, which was like a dirty, what really goes on in high school, spoof of the high school musical. So like a spoof of your actual TV show that you had in high school? Yeah. Well, the no, like the the actual uh, High School Musical, the movie. It oh, was like no the kidding. movie okay. with Vanessa Hudgens and Zac yeah. Efron. Yeah. So I did like a digital spoof of that, and then MTV saw it. They uh, they ended up buying a pilot from me. It was based on that web series, and I just kept going, like making more musical comedy and doing more comedy in that vein. But I hadn't really figured out how to marry that with my hosting career. So they sort of existed separately. But that definitely took on a, a life for you. Because if you go on your YouTube channel, you have a ton of comedy on there. I think actually your biggest video is the uh, celebration of uh, gay, uh, what's it called? Everyone's Just a Little Gay? Yeah, yeah, Everyone's Just a Little Gay. Oh, well, so I've removed so many videos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got to talk about that. I over too. 200, but I did keep that one up there. <laughs> oh, you removed a lot of comedy videos. I removed a ton of them. Yeah. 
Okay, gotcha. So I want to talk about that transition in a moment, but you did the the comedy um, type videos at you know the highest level on YouTube for a long time, yeah. and were able to make a living doing that. Then eventually, yeah. Or was that more like fuel for your personal brand that led you to uh, projects that paid? After I had been working on TV for a few years and regularly booking work, I started to realize that I didn't really love it. I was just like, I don't really love the world of trying to be an actress, the auditioning, the, uh, the constant, I, I don't know. It was just a very bizarre, it felt like such a, I'm trying to capture the words for it, but it, it just, there was, it didn't have the <laughs> bleh, diary of the mouth. It didn't have any, there was no consistency. There was no sense of agency. There was no sense of control. Um, and a lot of times when I would like book that big job and everyone would be so excited, I'd get to set and I would either wouldn't be working with people that were nice or, mm. or, or the role would get cut down to something that wasn't even fun anymore. And I just was like, I can't imagine myself doing this for another five years, never mind 10, 15. So fortunately at the time, YouTubers were starting to make money. And I, the videos I was making on the side were starting to accumulate views, and I, my AdSense checks were getting bigger. Now, nothing close to what I could make a living off of, but I thought, well, what if I, what if I quit acting? What if I took all that energy that I'm putting into auditioning, driving around town, <laughs> trying to impress people, and put it onto YouTube instead? And so I made the decision at 26 years old to stop everything I was doing in the traditional television and film space as an actress and put all that energy into YouTube. So that was a really hard decision. Yeah. And I was looking at your stuff and it's like high production stuff. Like for example, that was it an eighties cover album that you made with the Bon Jovi and, yeah. and there's I like studio audiences. And I mean, just this, like, you know, yeah. like I have to pay money to get the yeah. cameras here filming us and get this thing edited and all that. And it's not yeah. cheap. No. And your stuff is way higher production than this podcast is. I wouldn't say that. Well, but you learn, you, I mean, it, looks, you learn it looks great. You learn so, how to yeah, try to make you... things, you learn how to try and make things look as good as possible for as cheap as possible. And were you just coming out of pocket? It was like pocket? a startup. Yeah. Okay. I looked at yeah. it as an investment. I actually, when I was 26, um, I had an experience where I was, I was testing regularly for series, which basically means I was getting down, it was getting down to like me and two other girls as the series regular role in a big series. And it was, was like happening Like a big series like a regularly. Friends or a big series like a Like YouTube. Silicon Valley on oh, HBO okay. yeah. or um, New Girl or uh, I'm trying to think of the different series I tested for. But so you were I'm, getting on the cusp of like breaking through I was through signing the contracts. You get to the final stage where you go, you know, you go to the first you have your audition, then you go to producers, then they have you do read throughs with the other actors, then you usually go to a studio test, then a network test. So there's all these different sort of testing rounds. And once you get to the final round, the network test or studio test, you sign the seven year contract. And that's the like big they want you to money sign it. you're Yep. And you're then, a reoccurring role on a big show. You're a regular. So you are a signed, regular. you are locked in for seven years, six or seven years into this contract. And they do it with usually, it's usually two or three people that they get, the, that they narrow it down to who sign these contracts, but you don't know if you'll get the role. So but they sign just, you a seven year commitment? Oh yeah. And then what, so like six months later, they're like, game. no, we take that back? Or no, they, you, you audition you're like, still on you there basically for seven years. negotiate the contract, you do the test and then okay. you know within a day or two whether 
whether the network's going to go and with then, you. And if then if they don't go in. with you, they rip up the contract. Yeah, then the contract. Or are you null. a backup in case the other person contracts null? Got it. So that's the test. So you process. signed it. You so you go these. through this experience as an actor where once you start getting into a good rhythm and booking more, those tests happen more frequently. And do they tell you when you sign the contract, hey, there's other people up for this? And they're like, well, you hey, congrats. Know. Okay. You know, and sometimes right. you know how many. Sometimes it's like two, it's just you and one other person. Sometimes it's you and four other. So it this happened depends. to you a lot. It was starting to happen to me frequently. And, and you basically start um, preparing yourself for this entirely new life. Because in many cases, you're signing contracts that will send you to Atlanta or to Vancouver or whatever for seven years. And so I'm 26, and I'm looking at these contracts thinking, oh my gosh, if this happens, I'm going to be in Atlanta until I'm 33 or whatever, at minimum, like yeah. off of this contract. With, yeah. I don't get a choice. Yeah. And, and I was, there was this growing sense of dis-ease, mm. dis-ease, unease from signing, away to, signing these contracts, knowing fully well that I didn't love what I was doing when I was working as a guest star. How am I going to feel if I'm actually lucky enough, quote unquote, to book a seven year long committed, you know, series regular job, which is the dream. And so I, I think the last one that I tested for was Silicon Valley. Oh, wow. That was my last test. It was for one of the main female roles on that show. Okay. Um, and that's actually a great show. Is that filmed in Atlanta? No, that one was um, going to be, at the time, it was going to be San Francisco. I don't know if they ended up shooting there or not, but okay. I did not get the, the, the role. And I realized that I just didn't like the idea of having zero control over what my life looked like for that extended period of time. So I saved up enough money. I figured out, I budgeted, I think six months worth of videos. Wow. I hired someone to be my videographer, editor, extraordinaire. And I started just making and banking videos. And so when I was ready to start my channel, I think I had, I don't know, Maybe three months worth. So you had like a production company and you were... That was the beginning. Putting out. You, it was like a, yeah. a channel. as a real channel. It was. That's and awesome. And then the idea was if, as long as I could be self-sustaining with the channel, I always tried to keep my production costs at the same... Basically make... Uh, have my production costs equivalent to what I was making through YouTube AdSense. Then you knew it would... So I would net out at zero dollars. I would make nothing. And then royalty. And then the hope was that I would build a brand with yeah. these subscribers and that brand deals would come on top of that. Gotcha. And provide me an actual income. So I always saw the YouTube AdSense as, as just the way to afford the cost of production. Gotcha. And then... Um, and then brand deals or speaking gigs or other TV jobs that would come as a result of my channel would be like the, the income. Yeah. And so were the music covers things that you knew would do well that people liked, your audience liked those, and that was part of the channel? I had no idea. I mean, originally it was musical comedy. And right. And those did well. Mm -hmm. uh, I would sell the songs on iTunes, but I would also, they would usually do pretty well in terms of views. It was rare that a musical comedy song wouldn't get a million views. So I could always count hmm. on around $2,500 arriving in my account. That's about AdSense. what you get for a million views. At the time. I have okay. no idea now if it's worth that. I, I hear yeah. that AdSense now is it's $25 now. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But. So then I would try to budget the videos to be around that amount okay. or less. Um, and then as time went on, I found them harder and harder to make because I was writing these songs from scratch. They were bigger productions. It was a lot of work. More competition? Um, more competition for the eyeballs, you know, and just, I mean, both they in were other just content creators and other networks and things like that too, right. Are coming up at this yep. point. And YouTube had changed their algorithm. So you 
now you needed to be putting out at least one video a week. At the time, you could get away with one video every two or three or four weeks. Ah. Now you needed at least one a week, ideally two. And so I thought from just a production standpoint, I can't keep up with this. And not only that, but Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, had they had just come onto the scene as these social media platforms where you could aggregate your fans, and now you needed to push content out to those places. So oh, wow. you're, now you're becoming really divided in time and in energy. Yeah, and you so have different like, formats and different do? lengths and things like that that work so, on one and not the other. Yep. So it's covers became yeah. an easier way for me to still pursue something I enjoyed, music, but I wasn't I wasn't having to write a song from scratch. It was it was an easier avenue. I love hearing about the business that you built behind the scenes. <laughs> because people go on your channel at the time and would see a lot of comedy videos and they're like, oh, Taryn's doing this and that. But what they don't realize is you were a super crafty entrepreneur to get all that out there. Thank you. As far as putting the productions together and the schedule and learning how to work the algorithms and really the you were kind of the star of your own network that you had built in a way is it fair to say trying to figure out how to bootstrap a startup because like yeah, i'm going through like that now with this, this uh podcast and putting my own content out there yeah. and i'm realizing that me getting in front of a camera and delivering content is just a small piece of it yeah and i i'm really seeing that from the way you built this yeah. system yeah and i and i tried to be more savvy at times i think the at a certain point in my late 20s i was i just wanted to be self-sustaining and i wanted to build a foundation that would allow me to pursue whatever it was i was curious about and i realized that unfortunately the comedy angle or at least the way that i had gone about doing it on youtube had restricted me quite a lot mm. um that I had I had built I had built like a, a house, and it was really hard for me to do anything outside of the realm of that house without gotcha. people becoming incredibly confused. And was and it, it was also a tough space to monetize. Was it ever a a position where you, the money was really flowing nicely for you? Yeah, I mean you there were a couple of great year, years, years, and I was never a huge YouTuber because I still I I got in. Well, if from the OG YouTuber perspective, I got in late in terms oh, really? of trying to monetize because it wasn't until 2013, 2014 oh, that when I you started my channel. Got it. I was you just were putting on up videos, earlier, but but as far as being like a YouTube a content creator, and regular content as a as a as a living. Yeah, I think that was 2013, 2014. Okay, gotcha. And so I got up to like 500,000 subscribers, but at that point, you know, a lot of my friends were in the millions, got and it. Um, and I knew what it would have taken to continue building. But I saw the right, by 2015, 2016, I started seeing the writing on the wall for comedy. Um, because I had been looking at YouTube through the lens of I, Taryn, the actress, going onto YouTube and making content as this character. I had never looked at it, looked at as me as a Taryn, vlogger the, or as yeah. a brand. And, and I had never really thought consciously about if I was a brand, if it was me on there, what is it that I want to say? I just hadn't, it, I was just still looking at it through the lens of I need to entertain people as an uh, actress. So interesting. So 
I think at a certain point, I saw around 2015, 2016, YouTube had become a mecca for vloggers. And all these vloggers had something to say. They, had, they were either educating people, right? Makeup, beauty, fitness. Um, they had these like niches. And, and it's like I had my own passions and hobbies, of course, but that wasn't what I had built an audience around. Your audience was entertainment. Nor were they interested in hearing what I had to say in those areas because they wanted comedy songs gotcha. about poop. <laughs> yes. So I was like, oh, darn. I really screwed myself. I built this audience doing this one thing that is hard to monetize because you're selling you're you're not selling anything you're just entertaining people with comedy yeah. do people want to buy t-shirts from you do they want to buy bikes from you yeah. like what do you you and know and then if you did pitch something they'd be like you no. know, offended probably right? so you're beholden to brand deals that want you to make comedy videos of some like sort. the hot pockets like hot pockets thing. Um, that is your only source of income. You're just hoping for these brand deals. And you're hoping for the brand deals, but you really can't build anything. It's, it's very hard to see how you could turn that into a sustainable business. And then realizing that you are completely a slave to this YouTube algorithm. Mm. You're, I'm sorry, you're enslaved in a way um, because any changes that they make could affect your bottom line overnight. Um, and you don't have any other sources of revenue. Like I didn't have any products. Or yeah. I had other, no other revenue sources. So it's either if they, if their algorithm changes overnight and my numbers drop to a tenth of what they were, I'm not going to get those brand deals, which is the only way that I'm sustaining the uh, business. Was it a, a, a bummer when you had this realization, knowing that you'd spent these years building this thing? Yeah. And then you're like, shoot. And I would tell not. everyone, just like you are now, I would tell everyone, build your email list, build your email list, build your email list. And I never did it myself, even though I told everyone to do it. Mm. And in part because I didn't even know what my list was going to be about. I was this comedy YouTuber. Like, what is my... Got it. What do they want to hear from email except here's what my new comedy? Gonna, what am I going to talk about with them? Yeah. <laughs> so one day yeah. I'm scrolling through my Facebook or Instagram, I forget what, and up pops this picture of you. And you were like, it was like future Taryn. And there was like, I don't know if it was um, some photo effects or something like that, but you were wearing this like, like you look like this mega powerful like space warrior. I remember that photo shoot. <laughs> and it was like, wait a second. Yeah, where did this come from? Who, who, who is this? And what did she do with Taryn Southern? And then were I started reading. Did it reading. make you laugh? Were you like, this is ridiculous? No, Cause, cause no. Because of the comedy background? No, okay. actually, it was super fascinating for me. I think I might have even like wrote you a note at this point, mm. or I made a mental note, because I saw that, and then below it, it talked about this, this new direction you were going down. Mm. And I was, I was like, well, I'm actually getting goosebumps talking about this, because I, I saw this, and I was like, whoa, this is what I have been thinking about doing myself and I'm, I was in the mental transition of doing that myself also, was going from a guy who wrote comedy blogs and jokes right. on Facebook updates and Facebook notes when that was a thing, to trying to put out more serious content that would help people. And you went in that direction as well, going, like, it was like, this was we like, you're, really you're coming out. You were like, boom, like, this is me now. And it was really powerful the way oh, you just you. like came out like bam with that photo. <laughs> and that thank was, you, I believe, you. the announcement that you were working on the album Might produced. 
algorithm. with artificial intelligence. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So how, tell me about look, what was going on behind the scenes of you, like in your, your total personal mind meltdown. and emotions <laughs> meltdown. Yeah, tell me about I that. I mean, I think a meltdown precipitated that. Okay. But um, basically, I had a meltdown. <laughs> I realized okay. I could not keep up with the hamster wheel of putting out multiple pieces of content every week and produce content for brands. That was really how I was, had become self-sustaining. I built a small production company. I now had several employees. Um, and I just was exhausted. I was exhausted from the content churn. I was feeling really uncreative. I was not proud of what I was making mm. because I was trying to cut back on production costs and on the bottom line, but having to produce more. Um, and simultaneously, like wanting to, you know, in, wanting to grow my business, wanting to make something that was that was bigger than just my channel. If my channel died, and I think there was just I had a lot, a lot going on personally at that time too. So trying to maintain this version of myself, this like comedic, lighthearted version of myself online while I was going through a very challenging personal transition and just really wanted to go deep with people was also hard. So I had, a, sh- I had a breakdown. <laughs> it sounds like you evolved as a, as a person as well. Yeah, Because when so. you started the comedy route, you were what, 20? 20, 23. 23? 23 when I started doing the comedy videos. And and so now by I'm this 29. Point, 29, you built ish. a business, you have a team that's dependent on you for income, yeah. which is a lot of responsibility. You learn management skills. Yes. You, I'm sure by that point affected the lives of many, many people around the world that were probably writing you with problems and things like that and speaking on a lot of stages and meeting a lot of high caliber people. So I'm sure you had huge evolution as a person as well. Yeah, more responsibility, more, I mean, all of it. It was, and I just, I wasn't sure where it would all end up, like where the future of YouTube was going, but I saw my monthly revenues were, were, were getting cut just because of the changes that YouTube was making to the mm. algorithm and to the ad program. And I was like, I, if, I don't, if I don't stop or figure out something else, I'm going to burn myself into the ground. Mm. Did so, you have any stalkers along the way? I had a, I had a few. I think every I like YouTuber, had like a it's a rite of passage load. as a YouTuber to have stalkers. But it depends on what you, how you define stalkers. Because like, there are like the friendly stalkers. Right that maintain a distance, like the ones that just build websites for you in honor of your feet. Would that count? Ooh, that definitely counts. Had a few feet websites. Oh, you've had multiple? Yeah. On GeoCities or, or actual they would TerranSouthernsFeet.com? Like WikiFeet, and, oh, and then there was another TerranSouthernsFeet, something like that, dot com. Whoa. And they would take screen grabs from all my videos, and I learned that I really should stop making videos barefoot. No <laughs> I never did it on purpose. I just That's did it because I don't wear shoes in my home. But Screen grabs. Lots of screen. Okay. What else? What else? Tell me. Um, I mean, I did have somebody show up at my apartment one time. That was that was scary. Mm. Um, After that, I learned to how to try and mask my address. Um, I had lots of things sent in the mail. Some some things that were inappropriate. Um, But you also have this different relationship. I I mean, like sex toys. Okay. Right. Um, Photos of. I had a P.O. box, so it was kind of like anything okay. could come to this P.O. box. And, yeah. Did you um, get a lot of like strange DMs? I did. Like a, Lots of yeah. bizarre DMs. Feet, but I also had a lot of really sweet things that were sent mm-hmm. to me. And you just realize that it all came with the territory, but you 
you've developed a relationship with these other humans that are sitting on that side of the computer screen. You, you interact with them through social media and through comments, and you actually get to know who they are. And because I was also doing some live streams and some of the Patreon, I was doing Patreon early on. So I had a relationship with some of my viewers. And I also realized that that, that was energetically challenging to maintain along with everything else I was doing. It was like I was, had five jobs, basically. And most of those jobs didn't pay. So mm. you end up um, trying to figure out how to... You're making really money from only one funnel, but your energy is going into like seven areas in order to fuel that one funnel. And it, it was no longer a good, good use of time and energy and effort. So I had to recalibrate. Wow, how long? So I quit. Just, <laughs> just like quit, everything quit? else. I just quit. Like I, all one month back in 2016, I just, I uploaded a video and I said, I don't think I'm gonna upload a video for a while. Oh, and shit. a while turned into a year. Wow. And everyone was like, where did she go? And were you in, in the, like down in the dumps during that year? Or no, I had been down in the dumps leading up. And okay, then got it. I was like, I think the thing that's going to get me out of this slump is to stop this, stop running on the wheel. I'm a hamster on a wheel. And I'm never going to be able to see outside of myself unless I stop. And so I did. I stopped and I gave myself some space. I had, I had a few contracts that I needed to finish up on the production side of things. So it wasn't like I was without things to do. So I was still working on those contracts, on those projects. Um, and I think in my spare time, I started going to VR and AR meetups because I wanted to learn more about this new content space that people were excited about. And I found it exciting and interesting. And about a year of kind of experimenting, learning, playing around, I decided to focus on projects that were at the intersection of emerging technology and storytelling and, and basically figuring out how to build stories or campaigns around, um, around things that were in that space because I found them endlessly interesting. Mm. I felt like it was an umbrella that I could really um, pursue for a long period of time. So you started talking about that on camera or hosting? Really or? just talking about it with my friends oh, first. Okay. I right. didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm going to have to rebuild my entire universe that I've created yeah. online. So mm -hmm. I started by removing a ton of videos on YouTube. Okay. It's like 250 videos, something oh. like that. Comedy um, type stuff? Yeah, like a lot of the more risque comedy. I couldn't remove all of them. Like I said, it's pretty hard to delete stuff from the internet because there were so many things that were re-uploaded by fans. And I mean, I still, I could go back through and I keep saying I'm, gonna, I'm going to spend like a, a week coming whenever I have that time, I don't know, to yeah. really go through and, and clean it out. And it's not even because I'm ashamed of everything that I did or embarrassed by it. It's, it's just that it's, some of it's just, it's confusing for people. If you're trying to build a brand in one, in one specific area and then people go online and they see, um, you know, a, a song called Everyone Pees in the Ocean while you're, like, over here talking about artificial intelligence and creativity. Yeah. It's, it's confusing. That is very confusing. Very confusing. Like, what is this girl? What is she right. trying to do? What is she trying to say? And, and unfortunately, like, that version of me, um, it kind of undermines a lot of what I'm trying to do now. And I dislike that that's the case. I wish that there was more space to evolve as an artist and totally. for it to just be okay. What, hello, internet. It Everything is what it is. is. captured. And so Can now I have to be very... Can people find your old baby stuff if they look hard enough? No, okay. I can't even find oh, it. Yeah. I wish. 
But I, I need to be more proactive. And I, this is something that's like been an ongoing lesson for me, yeah. good and bad, that, my, that the various versions of myself that have presented them, that I've presented online, um, have consequences, like long-term consequences and ramifications, and like also still present opportunities. But the reality is um, you have to be so on top of what it is that you've put out there as you evolve. Yeah. It's like, it, it's, and that's another job, <laughs> right? That's so true, yeah. So you're talking about this thing with your friends. What was the moment when you decided you wanted to create an album written by artificial intelligence? Like, in, in this, this year time period where I, I took off from YouTube, I was diving into a ton of new areas that previously I just didn't have the time to. So learning about virtual reality, learning about augmented reality, also looking at um, biotech and genomics and brain-computer interfaces and all this stuff that was happening in the emerging tech space and maybe and how I could tell stories around that because I found it all fascinating. And I didn't know exactly how to do that, but I read an article in the New York Times one day about a couple of artificial intelligence programs that could compose music. And because music had always been my sweet spot on YouTube, it was just like, bam. It was so immediate in my mind. I was like, I'm, I'm making an album with AI. I have to make an album with AI. I don't know how to do it. No one had done it, right? No one had done it that I knew of. And huh. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know if I will figure it out on my own if I'm gonna, how, how I'm going to make this happen, but I have to do it. And I reached out to all these AI companies, these software companies. I said, can I get my hands on your software? Will you teach me how to use it? And they were like, are you going to make a pee in the ocean? I know, they're software, probably right? terrified, right? <laughs> and, but I wanted it to be a serious album that explored humans' relationship with technology. And it just it felt so creatively exciting to me mm. to be taking um, music, which is one of my passions, and then sort of merging it with this big unknown space where uh, you know there was no true path in how to make music with AI. There were like a bunch of different paths and I had to figure it out as I went along. And, it, and I didn't even know, would this project make me money? Would it, I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking any further than this is the most exciting thing I can imagine doing right now with my time. And so that's why I did it. And how did you find the, people or the robot or like <laughs> I reached out to all these AI software companies okay. and they, they for the most part Someone they all got back that, to me and said okay. they were engineers and they said great we'll teach you how to use our software we'll teach uh. you how to code um, some of them required coding some did not and I had an, there was an education process for a couple of months learning how to write and compose music with the software and had then, you written much music before besides song lyrics? Like, do you play instruments? Uh, piano, basic piano. Oh, okay. But not great. Okay. Not fantastic. But enough to write yes. for songs. Okay. Enough to write for songs. Okay. And then I applied for a grant from Google. They had a, a like an artist VR grant, and, and the grant proposal was I wanted to make a series of immersive music videos for this album. So it'd basically be taking principles of virtual reality augmented reality and artificial intelligence and merging them together into this experience. And because it was a very experimental program under YouTube slash Google, they uh, gave me the grant money. And that was, that was um, probably some of the videos that you saw online were a result of the grant money that I received from Google. 
slash YouTube. Wow. And those out. videos blew up. Did they? I haven't even looked. Yeah, I don't I mean, know. There's millions of views Are on, there? on okay, songs good. that you uh, <laughs> wrote know. alongside a robot. So what was it like when you first put that photo out? Was that the first online yes. of, or is that just happened to be the first thing yeah. I saw? No, you're, Was that the I first thing? So. Like here is me now, boom. Yes, I did a photo shoot. Okay. And it was just an experimental photo shoot. Who shot those photos? Because those photos are fucking awesome. A friend awesome. of mine, um, Devin Mitchell. Devin Mitchell, okay. Go look at the photos. Devinography on Instagram. Thank okay. you. Yeah, he was the first one to shoot those photos. He was an okay. old friend of mine. And, and, and I put just, it out there. And it was so scary. It was like, yeah. all right, here we go. There's yeah. no turning back. And it's Once your, I do your this. Fans are still following you, expecting the next... Comedy video. Yeah. But sort of like, where did Taryn go? Is she okay. dead? And then all of a sudden, here I am with a weird silver stuff all over my face. <laughs> Saying like, I'm making an AI album and doing all this VR stuff, and uh, hi, this is the new me. How did they, re they respond? People were really supportive, which was great. Um, supportive, and yet also I think there was a, a fair number of people who were like, Will where's the comedy? Yeah, or where's your, where are your yeah, feet? Yeah, yeah. W what about the poop jokes? Yeah. And those people just sort of quietly leave. Okay. And Onto you, the next feet. And the reality sinks in that the, the house that you built is now like there's a like a bit of a foundation left over, but the roof and the side wall, all, everything's gone wow. <laughs> from the so house. The album is amazing. The songs are Thank really you. catchy. Thank you. And the lyrics are really fascinating too. Did you write the lyrics yourself? I did. I wrote the lyrics myself. Okay, but the beats and the melodies. All of the orchestration, all the composition was AI. And does I the like AI the tell you, uh, like for example, what the, you give it the lyrics and the AI will tell you what notes should be high and low in the chorus? No, I actually, I would write the lyrics once I had a finished song that I was pleased with oh, based okay, upon how I felt about the music itself. Okay. But usually, I mean, it depended on the AI software that I was working with, but I was used multiple. usually, give, I used like four or five. Yeah, oh, Ava, shit. Amper, Google Magenta, IBM Watson Beat, and I feel like there was a fifth one that I used. So people can go grab these and make their own albums. Yeah, or songs. they can make their own songs. Absolutely. Oh, wow. okay. Absolutely. And now there's, there are more AI things more, on the scene as well. Because this was 2017 when you yes. made this? Okay. Yes. And Which 2017 when I started. I think 2018 okay. is when I released the album. With the yes. pace of technology too, that was probably like know, 20 years like, ago in AI. I know, years, isn't it right? wild? Yeah. Everything moves so quickly. But I released that and then... Um, and that brought you, at least from an outsider's perspective, a whole new type of recognition and spotlight because hmm. I saw you on stage at big conferences like were you yeah. at Web Summit yeah. and New York Times yep. I believe. New York Times AI Summit, yeah. Web Summit. I did a bunch of conference circuits um, where I was able to perform or speak about the role of AI in human creativity mm -hmm. which was exciting for me. It was a totally new space for me to be venturing into. Um, I really was uncertain whether or not I ignore my past decade of work or if I try to somehow include that in my narrative. And I, I didn't know, right? When we think about story, our own stories oh, and how we yeah. tell our story, um, yeah. I'd made such a big jump. I was so afraid of acknowledging a lot of my history, thinking that it would take away from what I was trying to do in this more serious tech space. Um, and... Since then, I think, I, I don't know if I have the answer, but 
I think that's a big challenging thing for anyone that's trying to reinvent themselves. I'm curious how if you did the same when you went through your evolution of self, like how how you how you decide to unravel your own history. Yeah. What do you pack up and like hide yes, in the back, yes. and what what sort of gets reframed and and yeah yeah. Well, I believe I have the answer. Okay. Though it is very tricky. Okay, great. I'm so excited to hear this. I have this saying that your shit is your superpower. Mm. That thing that you're really embarrassed about is probably the thing that gave you the strength and wisdom to become what you are now. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you're probably not still embarrassed about it. Mm-hmm. But by sharing it, also, you are creating an opportunity to connect with more people because when you share your shit, everyone realizes that you are human just like them. They have their own shit. So then humans bond by sharing shit. Right. So I think people like uh, uh, the lonely girl on YouTube that are reading the script and getting a lot of fans, I bet the script was really vulnerable moments yeah. of like, hey, you know, my boyfriend dumped me or whatever it She's was. talking about her family. Her yeah, boyfriend. it's probably yeah. a bunch of stuff that's like very personal. And if you look at these fake Instagram influencers that are made from CGI, mm-hmm. some of them are really well done, the captions. They're like, oh man, I'm feeling stressed out today. You know, yeah. I feel like even some of my personal friends want me to fail. Yeah. So I'm just trying to be strong and you know, wow. stick with the people. Like, like, and it's like a fake person that's yeah. like made on a computer. But it's really engaging. Right. And that's how they get the millions of followers is by revealing these vulnerabilities and sharing them. Now, at the same time, there's some things that are so freaking embarrassing that it's hard to talk about. So for me, when I was, well, all through my teens, I was very unsuccessful with women. Mm. And when I was 19, I discovered that there was this like underground world of these guys called pickup artists that would teach guys how to approach women. And I actually won, uh, you know they have the High School Hall of Fame? Yeah. So I won Most Bashful. Oh, okay. Yeah, actually it was in junior high school. So I was like the shyest guy in the whole fucking school. Wow. I was so hopeless. I was a virgin. All of my friends had, had <laughs> girlfriends. I'd never like even had a girlfriend. I'd only kissed two girls. One of them was right after she'd finished throwing up because she was so drunk. Wow. And uh, then she came and kissed me on her way out. This was a girl, I was 16, she was 20. That was one of my two kisses when I was like at the age of 18 or something. And so I was very desperate, very lonely, very confused. Yeah. And so I started reading these books. Yeah. And meeting these guys like Mystery, who you might have yep. heard of with the show on yep. VH1. Yep. And Neil Strauss, yes. who was an underground uh, researcher in that scene, wow. but also desperate and lonely himself. So and so he was in there writing a book. Right. And hang out with all these guys. Yeah. I ended up in his book, The Game. No way. And the character that I am in that book is a composite character of a few different people, including some people who were much more nerdy and creepy than I was back then. Wow. So guys who were like trying to hypnotize women over dinner and things like that. And when Neil asked me to be in the book, he asked me about this specific thing I had done, which was go on the TV show Eliminate. Do you remember that show? I do remember Eliminate. Yeah, so I went on the show, it was four guys competing for a date with one girl, 
I ended up winning mostly because I just didn't say much and let the other guys talk themselves out of the date. Nice. And there was this whole like community of these like pickup artist guys. Yeah, I that, remember this. Yeah. That um, and I worked in the business too, at, for a guy named Eben Pagan, who you yeah. know, that wrote a book called Double Your Dating, and I worked at his company, and so I was like a known person in this space. And when I went on that Eliminate show, all of the nerds got around their TV sets and watched it. That was the thing Neil asked me. He's like, hey, I'm making a composite character. Can I use your Eliminate episode? And I won't mention your name. I'll use a different name. I said, sure, let me just see it when you're done. So he sends it to me, and I read it, and it's a fine summary of the show. And I'm like, hey, can you change this thing about the girl? Because I don't want people to identify the specific episode. He changed that. But I didn't see the rest of the book with what that character was doing, all the weird shit. And so then the book comes out. And what's more memorable than someone going on a reality TV show? Not much, you know, in the, in yeah. the scheme of this yeah. book. So everyone attributed that entire character to me for years. Oh, wow. And so the character's name in the book is Grimble. And if you go search for Craig Eliminate on the internet, it comes up as Grimble on Eliminate. No. And if you read the book, this Grimble guy is such a loser. It's really? So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I was also a loser. And I did some, um, you know, things that were very probably repelling to women that hmm. I... Uh, that you don't identify with anymore. Take years <laughs> to learn to correct, you yeah. know? Like, I, I know I, I wrote some creepy notes and things hmm. like that, you know? And having that floating around has been... Was tra- tra- challenging. This is the first time I've told the whole whole thing really actually wow recorded conversation okay yeah great i didn't know this whole story i knew there was some association with some of those guys but i I never read the book either i've read neil's follow-up but i never actually read the game yeah so long term though a lot of things happen i mean neil is more successful than ever he just wrote kevin hart's book and He's got, uh, the, I think, the number one podcast in the United States or really? something right now wow. with that murder mystery thing he oh, created. And he's crushing it. And it's part of his journey was doing that pickup artist thing and then doing the next book that was like, hey, I was wrong in that book, you know? And uh, Eben Pagan, of course, is making a ton of impact and now teaching love and relationships with his yes. wife. He's a brilliant love coach. Annie, yeah, I know amazing. we've both done some coaching with her. I was just in Miami this last weekend with her. Oh, amazing. Yes. Yeah, she's unbelievable. Annie love Lala, her. if you need love coaching, she's the fucking best. The best. Um, Mark Manson, who had oh, and cool. still does one of the biggest selling books of this decade, yeah. was subtle art of not a pickup artist instructor. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who You guys have all... That. You, how have you have you all gotten together and said, "Wow, look at how far we've come and how we've evolved, and now what we're putting out in the world." I mean, we do talk about it when we see each other one on one. There hasn't yeah. been like a re. I think there needs to be a. Some of the people up. are still doing that right. stuff and in those bubbles. You know, I still see some of those people once in a while too. I'll run into them at an event or something. Wow. Like, what are you doing? They're like, "Oh, I'm just led a workshop in this nightclub." Yeah, <laughs> it's like whoa, so long ago. Yeah. So wow. yeah, that was a, a part of the thing that I went through that I am embarrassed about. And when I talk about it, usually I think about what is the bonding moments. And 
I wanted to, to share with you because you can relate to having the content that you are a part of being out there and being like apprehensive about people seeing it. So like me with like my story in the book, I don't mm. want people like seeing that because first of all, it's not even me, but even the parts that were me of the show and stuff is just still not me now. Right. But when I do share with other people now, I am open about the point that I was a virgin until I was like 21 or 22. And that's very bonding to people yeah. because they're yeah. like, wow, okay, I thought I was a loser. This guy's even worse. Or they're like, oh, I was a virgin until I was 26, so I can relate. Right. You know, or I was also lonely. Right. You know, it shows people that you know how they feel yeah. when you share these points that were really tough for you. Points and also that is, I think, what helped carve me into the type of man who was able to finally attract an amazing wife because I had so many years of failure and, <laughs> uh, being a loser and being unappealing to women. Yeah, yeah. I get all of that. I get all of that. I feel the same way. I mean, it, f- failure is character building for sure. Yeah. And yeah. You don't even have to have, like fully fail. You can just yeah. have a series of missteps. But I, I just I admire anyone who tries to mix it up who tries to evolve, yeah, really who tough. tries to reinvent. Mm-hmm. It's much harder than keeping with the course, but... And it's it. weird having the people that are used to your content that are your friends, mm-hmm. having them see the new you. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. you know, you all have, Although it's interesting, are... I do feel like when I was making comedy videos, a lot of my friends would say, um, you're not like how you are on YouTube. You're not what mm. I expected. Oh, you're much more serious and okay. much more... Yeah. You seem brighter <laughs> than, than how you appear on YouTube. Yeah. Or, I don't know. I would get different comments that like that. Yeah. So it's, it's something I, I think the, the, the insight, if I could share with people, is that share your shit. Share the stuff you're embarrassed about. And share your inner world. It'll, it'll connect you with your audience. Mm-hmm. And they will probably, despite what you think, want to hear more about what you're up to now because they know that you have a wider range. Yeah. And no one has a wider range than Terrence Southern. So, yeah. So, uh, what the hell were we talking about? I know. About we just before? went on a long Oh, yeah. So, we were talking tangent. about when you would talk at those. So, now when you put that out, you were getting a whole different type of spotlight. Yeah. The album was featured all over the place. Yep. And... And I had was it a one and done, or do you, do you see yourself making more albums? I didn't know. I mean, at that time, I just wanted to experiment with this new technology, and it did turn into some opportunities in, in speaking and also in, um, in consulting for companies in the emerging tech space around how to build content campaigns or partnerships with artists to demonstrate what their technology can do. Um, you know, like, case in point, all of these AI companies were trying to figure out how do we tell the story of AI without it freaking people out. Right. And humans think thinking that, that robots are just going to take over. Yeah, which they and are. And it's but like, we, we well, need, yeah. you know, if you partner, if you start partnering with artists and figuring out ways to create things like this album, mm-hmm. then that's one route to go. So, um, kind of figuring out how to parlay it into into these interesting new partnerships and and so that I could create more in the emerging tech space, that's one area that it divulged into. And then simultaneously, while working on the album, I was also working on this documentary 
um, on putting these pieces together for, for a documentary on, on brain-computer interfaces, and then that also took off around the same time. Ah, and so, so I saw the release date so far apart, but I forget that making yeah. a documentary takes a freaking long time. And in fact, it, it ended up being the case that I ended up having to work full-time on the documentary about halfway through finishing the album. So then the rest of the album production would happen on nights and weekends as like a hobby oh, wow. while I was actually in full-time production on this documentary. Because just so like so many things in the entertainment industry, they sort of, you develop something, you don't know when it's actually going to move forward. And yeah, then, but you were probably used to that. Yeah. So tell me how this idea for the documentary came about. Um, it was a... It was an amalgamation of a couple of different things happening simultaneously. What's amalgamation mean? Amalgamation, a synthesis, mm. I think. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully I got that right. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the culmination of a few different things happening simultaneously. Um, I had met a few different people that were working in the neurotech space and doing really interesting things. Simultaneously, Black Mirror, Westworld had become these massive hits and what I found fascinating was that we had all this sci-fi television and, and, and sci-fi genre filmmaking hitting a sort of peak in pop culture. Um, we were exploring through these series and ideas what happens when humans merge with AI or humans and machines merge. And meanwhile, this is really happening in the real world, but those, those stories or that story isn't really being told. We're, we're getting the fictional version. So I thought, wow, what's happening in the real world is, is actually just as interesting, if not more so, than what's happening in the fictionalized version of mm. these um, stories. So I started fleshing out an idea for a documentary that yeah. would follow some of these individuals who are being implanted with chips or brain-computer interfaces. Yeah, you know, whatever like, chosen tell, word. Talk about one of one of them that. So one of the so in in this documentary that I that I produced and co-directed called "I Am Human," we ended up following three humans with implantable brain-computer interfaces. So one of the humans is a, a woman with Parkinson's, former artist who lost her ability to make art because mm. of the degradation of her disease. A, also a paraplegic who was involved in a bicycle accident and could no longer move from the neck down. And a blind retiree, former IT government worker who, due to a regenerative retinal disease, could no longer... See. Lost his vision, okay. And all three of them had signed up um, with some degree of hesitation to have uh, an interface implanted in their brain to try and ameliorate these, 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 these issues that had, for lack of a better term, had sort of rendered a part of their humanity um, inaccessible to them. So these interfaces are like like little computers, tiny different little style chips. computers. Yeah, things like a computer chips chip. in the brain. That's right. Chips in the brain that stimulate redirect brain waves or electrical stimulation or all the above. Electrical stimulation is really okay. the the primary game right now in okay. brain computer interface land. That's changing, and there are other technologies that you can mm. introduce, like ultrasound or um, light or. Um, sound way, you know, there's different technology that you can use to interface with neurons, but most of the people that currently are undergoing these implants, it's electrical stimulation. They're hooked up to a device. The, the implant is hooked up to a device that then can stimulate the neurons in a pattern that mimics neuronal activity and can do all sorts of things uh, within the brain, controlling movement, controlling thought, uh, controlling sensory experience. And so we wanted to explore 
we wanted to explore this whole world through the lens of these three humans, their journeys, and then what this means for all of us. You know, yes, we're looking at these specific three humans, but um, they are representative of a much larger societal movement now toward brain interfaces. And in like, the what future, are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves? Right? That's right. Um, and because with the people that are being implanted now, um, even though they're doing it to try and fix or solve for a disease uh, that's taken something from them, they're also presented with opportunities that they might not have had without the brain interface. So Stephen, for instance, our character who's blind and has the, the implant to restore his sight, you know, he's got this, this capability in the chip that would potentially allow him to see in the dark, infrared vision, right? Because um, now that you're using silicone and not biology, there are a lot of opportunities that right. present themselves. Or so. what if it was 360 vision? Yeah. That plugs into your brain like this. Like, there would you your go. brain be able to read the 360 scope all the time? Maybe. Right. You'd have less people getting hit by buses. <laughs> there you go. So there's all I mean, there are a million questions that yeah. come up as a result of watching these stories and ethical questions and, and larger societal questions. And we only hit the tip of the iceberg. I'd like to think that there's a there's a part two or at least a TV series that could come out of this that really dives into to where we're at and is keeping up with the pace of the technology and the changes. But it was a huge undertaking for me, massive endeavor that required a lot of research working with these very serious institutions, but was such an intellectual, uh, an, an intellectually satisfying artistic endeavor. Like finally I felt like I got to do something that was really hard um, from, this, from both a point of view of storytelling and of learning basically neuroscience from yeah. scratch. Yeah, I, I think they're, I, I, so the, the documentary is fascinating. It's called I Am Human and I also want to say that this is a fucking documentary. Like, you're a director now. This is Tribeca Film Festival, all the film festivals, uh, and, you know, amazing reviews, well-deserved. I would watch it again because it's such a, like, it, ma it makes you think so much. Yeah. And there's fascinating things that you don't think about. Like, the one with Parkinson's, when they have to put the chip in, she has to stay awake. They, are unable to put her under because right. there's risk of death yes. if her brainwaves aren't going. That's it's right. It's like crazy stuff like that. Are they all like that? Every chip? I think just... most most of the the deep brain stimulation implants are done. I think they're all done while the patient is awake. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, this documentary is is wild. Everyone should see this documentary Thank to you. see what's coming, coming next. out in 2020. Especially if you like the books like Sapiens and Homo yes. Deus. That Homo, talk about. Homo Deus was actually the inspiration. A, was it? it? It was like the ideas presented in that book blew my mind. Yeah. It changed my entire worldview, and it was like, how do we somehow, how do we somehow present even just a few of these ideas without it just being a documentary with people talking, you yeah. know, about the future? So if you could have an implant to give yourself a superhuman ability, what would it be? Ooh, I mean, I would love to be able to shut off my fight or flight system. Ah. I think I'm ruled too much by this ancient, ancient system that doesn't serve me well in real life that says, Taryn, alert, alert, time to panic. Something's wrong is yeah. happening. And my body senses it as though it's actually in danger. And that's something that could be realistic. 
within yeah. the next five to ten years, I feel like. I think like. so. In Homo Deus, how do you, de Deus? Deus, they talk about the helmet. Yes. Where the woman is in a, a uh, I think she has a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And they test her in like a, a, a video game, and it's like a simulated war environment. Oh, yeah. Where they ever put the helmet on. Yep. And then she's able, with the helmet that helps her brainwaves, able to laser focus and like yeah. really do well in the game. And as soon as the helmet's off, it's just too chaotic for her. Yeah. So it yep. is really doing some of the things I you're think we can about. get there. We're figuring out how to turn on and off these various systems of the brain. And some people might argue, I mean, I've learned a lot about what people will argue <laughs> over the last few years, but they don't want to mess with what we've been given. But as a society, we've already signed off on a lot of uh, quote unquote cognitive enhancements or cognitive changers. Like we're all sort of okay on some greater or lesser degree with pharmaceuticals, which is like carpet bombing the brain. Right so to induce change. Mm -hmm. um, these, these, this is sort of the same thing, just going about it differently. Yeah. Um, and you could say it's far more precise. But I think, yeah, for me, I want, want to turn off the things that I feel like were, were evolutionary um, adaptations that don't really serve us well in modern times. Like, I'd, I'd love to just be a bit more even keeled, less emotionally reactive, and, and not go into a state of adrenaline or panic around things that aren't actually physically endangering. Right. And, you know, childhood baggage that we carry Trauma. around that affects us in relationships. Trauma. And even, I think we can be so much know. happier and so much more. And I don't, I don't love the word, I don't even like happiness as a goal, but I think just, I think the world can be so much more joyful and playful and, and we have the ability to be so much more present if we can just kind of turn off some of those annoying little ancient adaptations. Yeah, I, I remember walking out of that movie thinking, wow, we are the last generation that is not going to have this. <laughs> cool. My kids are going to have some sort of... Interface. Cyborg you interface You felt that. You, you walked out thinking, this is inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's because good. that's what we humans do, right? We're always trying to optimize and improve, often to a fault. But this is... I'm glad that you, like that's a, what you took away from it. I think that's what... It's, it's surprising to most people to think that that could even be a possibility, but when you dive into what's really going on, it's hard to, it's hard to come out with any other conclusion other than this is happening. It's like an inevitability. <laughs> it already is happening, yeah. so how do you stop it? Wow, so you were in the middle of making this documentary yeah. about brain... The future of the, our brains. <laughs> ...interfaces and human health, and you had a shocking health discovery. Yes, it was the we premiered the documentary at Tribeca Film Festival in May, May second of this year, twenty nineteen, and the day after the film premiered at Tribeca, I discovered I had a lump in my underarm, and it was a very large lump under my under under my arm, and I thought, how have I not seen this? It's so big. How where like like up in my armpit, but like so the base of my armpit. Okay, so not that near your breast, no. really. No, it was in my underarm. And you, it was so big, you're like, And I Whoa. only noticed it when I had my arm up. So it was like the way that my muscle caused it to pop out, to protrude yeah. out. But was it was it, large. Was it hard? Or? It was hard and large. It was like the size of a ping pong ball. And how, how like, like did it feel like a, a cyst or something? I want no, it was know. like, it felt like a, like a, like an, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm feeling my kneecaps right now. It felt like a hard mass that didn't have, it wasn't squishy. Whoa. Okay. You know, it was a hard mass, and it didn't have any pain associated with it. And okay. I Googled that, and that was not a good sign. Because if it, there's pain associated with it, a lot of times it's just a fluid-filled cyst. 
Okay. So um, I was pretty concerned. I actually had a friend in New York who was a doctor, like, feel it. And he said, you need to immediately go get this checked back in L.A. So I made an appointment, got back to L.A. the next week, and was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer that had spread to my lymph nodes. And it was a 2-centimeter two, two tumor, 2 by 1.4-centimeter tumor. Wow. Yeah. And I had another stage tumor, three. another tumor in another lymph node. What is yeah, the stage? Yeah, they technically three mean? categorized it as stage two C or stage three A. The way they stage cancers, it's different de for depending on the cancer. Isn't and it like stage four? Like stage four really is you can't cure currently. Um, stage four is metastatic breast cancer. That means it's spread to other organs outside of the lymph nodes and breast. Lymph nodes can be either stage two or stage three and they stage it based on the size of the tumor and how many there are. Okay. And they don't really know how many there are until they go in and do surgery. Mm. But in my case, um, and this is becoming the case more frequently with breast cancers, they wanted to do chemo before surgery with the attempt to shrink the uh, tumor so, they're not having, so they don't have to remove a ton of lymph nodes. Because let's say it had already been in 16 lymph nodes. Okay. They don't know until they get in there in surgery and injected dye to see where the cancer went. Ah. And they don't want to rip everything out if the chemo has an opportunity to kill it. And then, because you don't want like lifelong problems without your lymph nodes if you don't, mm. if you can help it. Yeah. So basically for a lot of new breast cancers, they actually don't really give you uh, a definitive stage until after surgery. So I've now been downstaged because once I got into surgery, they discovered I had a complete response to chemo. So um, what does that mean? That basically means that the chemo killed all the cancer cells in my all lymph nodes. From what they can see, wow. um, you know, you're never going to see like the tiny, tiny microscopic cells and tumors yeah. that you're not taking out. But in the original tumors, I was really scared because after about chemo number three, my tumor stopped shrinking. It wasn't responding, and I thought that meant, I thought that meant, like with so many cancers, you have different types of cells within a tumor and some will respond and yeah. some won't and some will become stronger and develop almost like an antibiotic type resistance to the chemo where mm. they, they outsmart the chemo and I was very concerned Whoa. that that might be the case with mine but the good news is it was just a pile of dead cells <laughs> and the other little tumor was completely gone. So well, What's going through your head when you first go into the doctor's office and they tell you like this is actually cancer. That must because you're so young. It was, it was just a shock. It was like, I couldn't. You just never think that that's going to happen to you. Yeah. Everyone has experience with cancer. I think everyone knows someone knows or has some, a family yeah. member. It's definitely, um, you know, I think we all have some experience with it to some degree, but we just think it never me. Especially because I felt healthy. I mean, I definitely had had a rough year where I was working way too hard on that documentary, trying to get that thing done, not sleeping, not taking care of myself. Definitely sort of um, my health was like probably priority number seven, you know, on the list. But I didn't think I would ever have anything like that pop up. And the fact that it was already in my lymph nodes was even more terrifying. It wasn't like it was just in the breast. So it felt like it was already at a stage that was more than uncomfortable for me. Oh, I was man. like, I would feel a lot better with a stage one <laughs> situation. Oh, do you sit with it or do you tell your family or friends first or? Uh, yeah, I, um, I, well, I actually, here's the, the funny story is I immediately called my 
uh, one of my best friends, Julia and Anna, who's here. Um, I called. The, we all went to college together and were besties. And I mm -hmm. called them, and and the first thing they did is they, they came over to my apartment. I was laughing and crying at the same time. I was just like, how is this even possible? And then Anna ordered a bunch of liquor to my house. <laughs> She's like, let's have a drink. That's how we deal with, that's how we deal with trauma. I was like, I don't know if this is the best idea for uh, a newly diagnosed cancer patient, but sure, why not? Let's have one last, one last yeah. drink. And we did. Um, that was literally like the last drink I had in months. Um, but it was, I don't even, there's no words. I mean, it was just, it was shocking. It was, you're terrified to ask the questions that you, everyone thinks about, like, but you I'm, are too scared. Die, what, right? what, like, what's my, what's yeah. my, what are my chances? Yeah, what are your chances? And it wasn't even, the weird thing for me is I had a sense, like I knew that there's always that worst case scenario. My, my aunt, sadly, passed away from the exact same type of breast cancer that I had. She died uh, gosh, I think it would be 15 years ago, and it was before they had these antibody treatments that I'm now on, along with the chemo. And um, so my type of breast cancer 15-plus years ago would have been pretty much a death sentence. You just and couldn't so survive your it. family passing from it. And watching her fight it for five years oh, was awful. So I think it was five or six years that she fought it. I, but, yeah, there's always that part of you that thinks, oh, my gosh, that could be me. But I also knew that the treatments had gotten much better, that the chances were good. I was actually far more terrified that I would just be, that this would now become my life, that, that from, from now on, all I'll be thinking about is will it come back? Because mm. um, you can fight it, but reoccurrence rates are very high, especially when you get it young. Mm. Um, high relative to other cancers. Um, and so I just, I was so scared about my life becoming cancer. Like mm. that's what I, what scared me the most. And you just, the unknowing, the not knowing. There's just so many question marks. Like how long am I going to be on chemo? How long am I going to be fighting this for? Um, will I really get all of it? So I had the best possible news last month after surgery when they went in and they, they didn't, they didn't know for another week because they have to send everything to pathology, the tumor and everything, but um, I had been declared a complete response to chemo, which does not mean that you're cancer-free from a medical standpoint. What it means is the cancer responded fully to the chemotherapy from what they can see, um, and now you have to go through these other treatments to sort of ensure that anywhere else in your body where there could be little cancer cells floating around that those are taken care of. So I start radiation next week. I'll be doing daily radiation for six weeks. What does that mean? Um, it's basically like a big, huge radiation machine. You go in it and, mm -hmm. and oh, they, wow. they They put in some like little tattoos on my chest area and lymph node area, the radioactive tattoos. Like so actual tattoos? Yeah, <laughs> tiny. So that the laser can find the right place. Oh, wow. And, and the, the idea is that it kills off you know, the radiation can kill off these cancer cells that could still be floating around in the area. And then I also continue on in antibody infusions. So I have a port implanted into my chest. That'll stay there till next June. And through that port, I have infusions every three weeks of this antibody, which specifically targets HER2 positive breast cancer cells, which is the kind that mm -hmm. were so deadly 15 years ago. So Do these treatments like 
put you down for a couple of days? Because um, I, I heard way better than chemo. Pretty devastating. <laughs> no, I mean, like I feel pretty normal now. I I don't have the same energy levels. Mm-hmm. I have to be very careful with my energy. Like I can feel when I get tired and worn down. It's it's faster than than typical. Um, also, my brain is still coming back online, so I've been having a tough time finding words or articulating thoughts. But it's so much better than what it was two months ago. I'm mm. so grateful that I had that response to chemo because had I not had that response, I would have had to continue on a new chemo drug for another year, which would have been a lot. Wow. And it would have been a big, 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 um, I think, I mean, it would have just taken a lot of emotional and mental fortitude, I think, to, to continue continue fighting, you know, while you feel as terrible as you do. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Is this tattoo uh, new or is that something you've had? No, I've had this one for a while, my cat too. Oh, it's a cat. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was, I, so I was saw it upside down, so I thought it was a, like a tie yeah. symbol. Yeah, no, it's a kitty cat. But yeah, I, did, it was, I mean, it's been a wake-up call in every area of my life. I don't think I, I can ever look at anything the same way. What are some of the biggest learnings you've had? Man, I mean, I just, it's, it's a similar thing. Uh, when you ask someone who's done psychedelics what they take home and, the, and they have a hard time articulating the lessons that they've learned because the lessons sound the same as they would if you read them in a self-help book, but for some reason they're so much more poignant. And I think that's because the psychedelic experience is embodied. Mm-hmm. You're ta- these lessons aren't just things that you read on a page. They're, they're lessons that you like fully experience through all of your sensory mechanisms. Right. And your brain, I think, um, I think your brain actually imprints them differently than mm. if they were read or given as advice to you by someone. Similarly, like going through this experience, like feeling as awful as I did knowing that I could die, um, you know, you're dancing with death on some level, and then coming out of it gives you some sense of self-confidence and and, um, joy about just everyday life that I I don't think it could be acquired any other way, maybe through lots of meditation. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you stared death in the face and kicked its ass. <laughs> I genuinely, I wake up some days and I'm just like, ah, I just, I cry from really normal, silly things because I just feel so happy. So amazing. Yeah, so happy to be here. So happy to like be able to breathe and climb a mountain and to hang out with friends. Yeah. And feel and to feel good doing those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just so much gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And knowing you, I'm sure you have so many more big plants. What's on your <laughs> mind next? You know, because like you could go in so many different directions now. I mean, this this movie. People need to see this movie. This movie is is a game changer. People are probably asking, "Are you going to do another documentary?" People won't probably would love to see more from you on this or on a different topic or. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could see myself doing another documentary. I, I have a few ideas. Um, I have a development deal with National Geographic, so that's exciting, and I'll be sending some some fun new ideas their way this year. We'll see what happens with that. But um, 
I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the honest answer is a month ago, I didn't know if I was going to be on this really challenging drug for another year. And so it was kind of just like, I couldn't look ahead more than two feet. I couldn't see ahead more than two feet ahead in front of me. And now I have this wide open space where, yes, I have to still do these things to get to the point where hopefully I'm in remission in two years. And, but I can get back to normal people, life, work things. And, that, and oop, microphone. Um, and so right now I'm just taking the time to, almost like I did right before my album, I'm, I'm cleaning my life up, playing catch up with things that sort of slipped through the cracks over the last year, year and a half. And meanwhile, taking stock in things that I find interesting, exciting. And I know that at some point, an avenue or an opportunity will open up along one of those paths that makes sense. But I'm not racing to do something right now. That's like really genuinely yeah, so just it sounds like you, you, kind of in the ideation yeah, slash maybe less pressure appreciation now because you just you're just enjoying you yes. know every every day every moment yes I and mean, I know that not, something not having will. that feeling you have to like race to get more yes. content out or no whatever no and at some point I'm gonna have to re-enter the game of life <laughs> like a yeah. responsible adult and figure things out but in the meantime I'm just really trying to appreciate every moment that I have right now with my friends and my family and um, just experiencing the beauty of life through that lens right now. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> That's my job right now. I love it. Yeah. Well, I know I speak for many, many people when I say I'm really happy to hear that things are going well and as not just a friend but a fan, Thanks. no rush, but I'm super excited to see what you do next as the things you've done in the past have been so fascinating and unique in such different ways and so eye-opening. Thank you. As far as what we can all do next, what could be in the future for all of us as this crazy, like, technological world unfolds. It's so true. And so fascinating, too, that it feels like this experience has like opened uh, even more appreciation of just humanity and life that has nothing to do with the intelligence and cyborgs and artificial, but also made possible by advances in technology that increased the effectiveness of treatments from 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's so it's so weird. That's uh, I get to see it firsthand, experience it all firsthand. Yes, I, I, I do. I have an incredible appreciation for the delicateness that is being human. And anything else is bonus at this point. Thanks so much for watching. If you want to hear a story that's even wilder than that one, click here. You only have five seconds though. Five, four, three, two, one, go!